Good morning, everyone. We are less than one week to Christmas. Oh, come on. Seriously? We are less than one week to Christmas. There we go. I know there's not that many of us in the hall this morning, but uh, we, can, we can definitely make at least that much noise. Just to, uh, just to highlight, if you are in the venue this morning, and you obviously can't see this if you're at home, uh, you're probably looking around and going, do we really need volunteers for our Christmas service next week? Uh, looking at the numbers in the venue this morning. Uh, and in our staff meeting uh, this last week, we actually looked at the numbers. Obviously, we didn't have uh, in-person Christmas last year, but the two years before that uh, were two of our busiest, if not our busiest services of the year. People do love uh, to come to church on Christmas, and we always have a lot of guests uh, at Christmas. And um, it's part of our ethos that we're a church that really loves to serve our guests well, to welcome them, uh, to be hospitable, and to really create an environment where they can experience uh, the love of Jesus through community. Uh, and so really just want to highlight, if you're looking around and going, oh, I'm sure they've got it covered and they probably don't need me um, because there's so few people this week, I can almost guarantee you that next week will look very different. Uh, just to say in terms of our, our COVID uh, kind of setup for next week, we had long discussions this week and obviously everything is subject to change for we know somebody speaks to us tonight. Um, but as things stand at the moment, uh, traditionally we would have our kids in the venue uh, for Christmas. Because we are expecting really high numbers, we have made alternative arrangements for the kids that won't be in the venue. We're working hard uh, to make sure that everything is COVID compliant uh, and that we do things really well and really wisely uh, while also hosting as many people as we possibly can uh, to experience community and to celebrate uh, the birth of Jesus. So we're obviously in the season building up to Christmas uh, a season that is traditionally known as Advent, which basically just means the preparation for Christmas, the preparation uh, for the birth of Jesus. And last week, Vessel began our journey of Advent in the Gospel of Luke, Luke's accounts of Jesus' life, as we considered faith in a God who acts in barren times. And we saw the angel Gabriel announce to Zechariah uh, that he would have a son. Uh, which was significant because for years and years, he and his wife Elizabeth had wanted a child, uh, but now in their old age had given up on that dream and had kind of just consigned themselves to being barren. And now he was going to become a father. And not just a father, but the father of the forerunner, the cousin of the long-awaited Messiah, John the Baptizer. And we saw that in that moment, Zechariah's response was a response of doubt, even as a priest and a long-time follower of God, his response was a response of doubt. His forefather Abram had a similar miracle announced to him when he was a hundred years old. But Zechariah in doubt asks the angel, how can this be? And we saw last week that as a result he was struck mute until the birth of his child. Now this week another announcement is coming. And what we're going to see this week is that even though God's grace doesn't always seem convenient, at least to us, there are only two appropriate responses to God's grace. Even though God's grace doesn't always seem convenient, at least to us, there are only two appropriate responses to God's grace. Let me pray and I'll dive into our text this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, as we prepare for the celebration of Christmas... We just still our hearts and our minds from all of the kind of worldly excitement, which is great, especially if you've got kids and it's 
It's fun and it is good to celebrate and to have joy, but we kind of pull back from that just for a moment to remind ourselves of the true joy and excitement of Christmas, the true gift of Christmas, the true reality that Jesus came into the world, that God, you saw there was no one to intervene on behalf of your people, and so you rolled up your sleeves and you stepped down into history yourself to rescue your people. As we consider the announcement of Jesus' birth this morning, I want to ask that you would help us to respond in faith and to respond in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to read in two sections this morning. I'm going to read a section and talk a bit, and then I'm going to read another section. Starting off in Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy that we just heard about, uh, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. The first appropriate response to God's sometimes inconvenient seeming grace, at least inconvenient from our very limited point of view, is faith. The first appropriate response to God's grace, even if we don't understand it, is faith. Neither Joseph nor Mary's family has any claim to wealth or fame. We know this by where they live and by the fact that Joseph is just a small-town carpenter, and yet Gabriel declares Mary favored or blessed when he says to her, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary's response immediately is to be frightened, which is not an unreasonable response to a heavenly being appearing to you so unexpectedly. You know, we're not given a lot of flavor text, as it were, uh, around what this angel looked like and how she knew he was an angel. But I would imagine if, if some being appears in front of you and it is obvious that that is an angel, that fear is probably an appropriate response. And so Gabriel repeats again, do not be afraid, you have found favor with God. Now, this expression, found favor, is common in the Old Testament, appearing over 40 times. Uh, Gabriel is saying to her, Mary, God is going to show you unimaginable grace. God will give you favor so far beyond your deserving that you will be overwhelmed. And the angel then explains this privilege, uh, this grace to her. 
You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Just look at these descriptions. Great. The Son of the Most High, the Son of David, sitting on the throne of David reigning over Jacob's descendants, over all of God's covenant people forever. His kingdom will never end. The Jewish nation has been waiting hundreds of years for the promised son of David to become their king. And Mary now hears the angel saying that this long-awaited Messiah will be her son. A young girl from nowhere, a girl with no prominence, chosen to be the son of the Messiah. Now, remember last week how Zechariah responded when he was told that his barren wife would have a son? How can I be sure of this? He's asking for the angel's credentials because he's struggling to believe. His response is one of doubt. How does this young woman respond? Well, initially she's just confused, which is kind of understandable, right? She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Biologically, this is slightly problematic. I think that's a fairly reasonable response. And so the angel explains, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Overshadow is a term that is used several times throughout Scripture to indicate God's presence. When we were looking in the book of Exodus some months ago, uh, when the Israelites completed construction of the tabernacle, the cloud of God's glory settles on the tabernacle. It overshadows it. It's the, the miracle of God's presence in an undeniable, unbelievable, miraculous way. And so Gabriel reassures her of God's ability, and then he tells her of something else that God has done. Elizabeth's pregnancy. No word from God will ever fail. Nothing is impossible with God. Now, here's the thing. Even if it's miraculously slash biologically possible with God, this news has ramifications for Mary's life. She realizes it instantly. It's risky. Later, we're going to see Joseph thinking about the same risk. She could be stoned to death for infidelity, since her marriage to Joseph is already a legalized contract. That's how engagement worked in those days. In in our days, the kind of legal, formal side of things is when you actually get married, but in their day, it was the engagement that already initiated a formal legal contract, and things for women were not always fantastic back then. This was an incredibly risky situation for her. Now, her husband-to-be Joseph is a good man, and so he doesn't go that route, but he actually does plan to annul the engagement when he finds out, and it takes an angel to change his mind. Men, I mean, I don't think we can really blame him for that, can we? I mean, just put yourself in his shoes. Your fiancé comes to you one day, she says to you, "Um, by the way, I'm pregnant, and you kind of think to yourself, well, I know it's not mine, uh, because there would be certain formalities involved that uh, I apparently wasn't present for. And uh, so you can certainly put yourself in in his shoes and understand why he might want an annulment. And an angel has to come and speak to him. What this angel is saying is incredibly risky. Maybe sometimes you feel that following God is incredibly risky. What shakes you when you feel the prompting to follow God? 
What fears of loss or reputation fill you? Is there something big or small that you felt God impressing upon you and calling you to obey Him, hand something over to Him completely that you're struggling to do? What are you afraid of? And how does Mary's response and the courage of her faith speak to you? Because yes, her response. Yes, there's the initial confusion. That's understandable. But yes, her actual response. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Don't you just love that? You know, you can kind of picture great scenes in a movie of loyalty to a president or, or to royalty. And we see fealty being sworn to the sovereign. I serve at the pleasure of the king. Mary's response here to God is perfect. I serve at the pleasure of God. Whatever he wants to happen, let it happen to me in his service. Unlike Zechariah, who responded in doubt, her response is faith. Mary receives great grace from God, the privilege of being the mother of the long-awaited Messiah. A great inconvenience, at least from her point of view, privilege. And Mary, showing great faith and wisdom, forgets her plans the way she saw her life going. Almost immediately, she has faith in God's promise to her and to her people. Last week, we saw an older, more experienced man, a priest, who grew up in a priestly family, acting unwisely and doubting God's word. This week, we see a young, probably teenage girl, probably late teens, with no real life experience or ministry experience, confused, yes, that's that's not how things normally work, but responding to God in faith. Education, age, gender, time in ministry don't protect us from doubt and not submitting to God. On the other hand, youth, inexperience, and lack of education don't prevent us from responding in faith to what God says, believing Him and submitting to His ways. So I want to ask you again, how does Mary's response and the courage of her faith speak to you? Where is God calling you to have courage in faith? Because faith is the first appropriate response to God's sometimes inconvenient seeming grace. Now let's consider the second appropriate response, which is worship. We're going to continue reading. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, six-month baby already, uh, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, or perhaps sang, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. 
He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abram and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months, until John was born, I guess, and then returned home. Elizabeth's response here makes clear whose son is the most important, as she calls Mary the mother of my Lord. She knows Mary's son will be the Messiah, the long-awaited descendant of King David. Mary's a woman of faith. She believes. She acts on that belief. Her plans are turned upside down, but the angel says to her, by the way, you have this relative that can't have a child. Well, actually, she's six months pregnant. She's like, cool, I need to go be with my relative. She responds to what God's word is to her in an appropriate way. She acts on her belief. Now she expresses her response to God's work in a marvelous song in worship. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Everything within me wants to make much of God. Everything within me responds with rejoicing. He is both Lord and Savior. Like many prayers in the Psalms, these two lines are parallel to each other, expanding on each other. My soul is parallel to my spirit. Lord, standing for the name of God, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, that we learned about in the book of Exodus, is parallel to God, my Savior, the one who promised who will deliver his people. John Piper uses a great illustration for this point. He says, we magnify God the way a telescope magnifies a star. The star is huge, so huge it's beyond our comprehension. Yet it appears to us as a tiny speck of light. The telescope makes it appear a bit larger to us, a bit more like its real self. It's the same with God. When we magnify him, we make him look more like he really is. Because in our world, in our culture, God often appears small and insignificant as people don't want to look at him and focus on who he is. We magnify him, and yet we still fall far, far short of showing all of his glory to those around us. Now, the parallel between magnify and rejoice shows that Mary magnifies the Lord through her joy. You see, if she goes along with God, but she's kind of moping throughout her pregnancy, she's depressed at the direction God is taking her life, well, then she's diminishing God. She's not magnifying him. Not in the sense that she can actually make God smaller, but it's like she's kind of turned that telescope around. You know, if you look through the telescope in the wrong end, then things actually appear smaller than what they are. Rather than making God more real so we can see him more clearly, when we serve begrudgingly, like we think we deserve something better, kind of just going along with God, we're looking through the wrong end of the telescope. God appears smaller and less significant than he actually is. We imply that our plans are more important than God's plans for us. And Mary doesn't do this. And she teaches us not to do it as well. 
Instead, she sees that God has lifted her out of the mundane and given her a great task. He's given her great grace for that task. He will do everything necessary to enable her to fulfill that task. She rejoices, and this rejoicing magnifies God. She shows that God is her all in all. And she gets specific about why she is so joyful. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Mary clearly believes Gabriel's prophecy. She believes God's might. In faith, she sees the better future that God has in store for her. All generations going into the future will call me blessed. The mighty one has done great things for me. She rejoices in that, magnifies him. That is one of the hallmarks of faith according to the book of Hebrews. Understanding, trusting in, acting in line with the better future that God promises for those who follow him. Even when a lot of that better future is not realized in this lifetime, but is realized when we go to be with God. When he wipes away every tear from our eye and we're we're all suffering and pain cease and we get to enjoy eternity in his glorious presence. She acts in line with the better future that God has promised her. That's what faith is. Holy is his name. This expression sums up her praise. God is pure. God is righteous. God is just. She knows she's not holy. Compared to God, she is nothing. But this great God has touched her, has blessed her, has empowered her. It's like Psalm 8 that Vessel read at the end of worship. God, when we consider the works of your hands, the stars that you've stretched out in the sky, what is man that you're mindful of him? And yet you've put man over the works of your hands. This great God has touched her, has blessed her, has empowered her, and so she rejoices in God, thereby magnifying him. Next, she turns away from herself and reflects on God's expressions of covenant love to his people at all times, past, present, and future. Mary now stands at the focal point of that plan with Jesus in her womb. She doesn't yet understand her role completely, but she knows enough to offer us these great words of praise. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abram and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Looking at those verses and the verses even before them. He has been mindful. He has done great things. Holy is his name, his mercy. He has performed. He has scattered. He has brought down. He has lifted up. He has filled. He has sent away. He has helped, just as he promised. Do you see the telescope effect? It's not first and foremost focusing on ourselves and what is happening in our lives, although it is right to be thankful and praise God for that. 
But Mary here shows us that the correct response to God's grace is to focus first and foremost on Him, who He is, what He has done, what He is doing. And if I'm 100% honest, Common Ground Durbanville, I'm, I'm not 100% sure that we're that good at praying in this way. When we pray, I, I don't often hear us praying like that. Thank you, God. Yes, we're very good at saying thank you to God for his blessings in our lives, and that is right and that is appropriate. But simply praising God, simply turning this telescope of prayer onto the nature of God and declaring it out loud, rejoicing in who he is, I'm not sure that we're actually that particularly good at that. When I was in Bible school, the head of our Bible school used to actually push us on this. We'd have extended times of prayer. And you actually felt like you had to prep to come to that prayer meeting. Because you knew that at any moment he could call on you to pray. And you would just have to pray for like five minutes without stopping, focusing on God and who he is. And you kind of like have to build up the vocabulary in order to do that. You know, names of God, attributes of God, who God is. And, and you can look at that and say, well, maybe that's a little bit mechanical. And maybe you shouldn't have pushed people. Let me tell you, I learned so much about God because of that. Because you had to come and you had to be ready to pray for five minutes just on who God is. And it turned this telescope onto God in the room. And when, whether you were praying or other people were praying, you were learning something about God. And yes, the other thing, your faith was growing. You see, these two things go hand in hand. These two appropriate responses, faith and worship, go hand in hand. You can't worship if you don't have faith, but if you don't worship and turn a telescope of prayer and praise onto who God is, your faith is going to get weak. They go hand in hand. And so I thought I'd do a little, a little real-time demonstration, and I haven't written anything down for this. I've just picked a prayer from Scripture and I haven't written anything down because I just want to riff on this. I didn't want to kind of like make it like, yeah, Gareth, you had plenty of time to think about this and it's all flowery and eloquent and I can't actually do that. I've just picked a prayer that I love from Scripture and I just want to spend two minutes just riffing on it, if I can use that phrase, in prayer. It comes from 1 Chronicles 29. The scene is uh, David has collected tribute from all across Israel so that his son Solomon can build a temple in God's honor. 1 Chronicles 29, David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God and Father of Is the, the, the God of our Father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. You take a prayer like this and you just begin to pray out the reality. Pick up on the words in the passage and begin to pray it out in praise of God. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power because everything in heaven and earth is yours. Just meditate on that for a moment. Everything is yours, God. As I travel around my day, as I go throughout my day, I see these beautiful mountains. 
They're yours, God. As I stare up into the night sky and I see the distant stars, they're yours, God. How great is that? The, the power to create everything that is with a simple word. God, that is unbelievable. I can't comprehend that power, God. Oh, the majesty to bring that into being, the splendor. Oh, I see splendid things as I travel around our beautiful country, as I watch National Geographic. I see splendid things. How much more splendid are you, God? Everything is yours. Wealth and honor comes from you. Oh, wow, God, that, that promotion that I got at work, that raise that I got, that new client that I got. Oh, I'm tempted to think it comes from me, but actually it comes from you because wealth and honor come from you, God. You're the ruler of all things over my workplace, over my job, over my family. And I'm not going to keep going through the prayer, but can you see what that does? That's how we learn to magnify God. That's how we turn a telescope of praise onto who God is. And I trust that your faith level has been rising even as I've been doing that and my faith level has been rising because that's what happens when we praise God for who he is, which is one of the two appropriate responses to God's grace. Let's get back to Luke. What is the theme of magnifying God? It's God's mercy. It's God's steadfast love, it's his faithfulness to his promises as expressed to his people. God is always working for his covenant people. He was even working the 400 years before Mary, where if you know biblical history at all, you know God was said to be silent because there were no more prophets. To whom is this mercy expressed? Note that Mary does not say that he shows mercy to all of Abraham's physical descendants. Mary says he shows mercy to those who fear him. There we go. He shows mercy to those who fear him. Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. God is the only strong one. He always takes weak ones like Mary, like Esther, like David, like Daniel, and he exalts them showing that he is the power of their strength. He always takes the proud, the mighty, like Pharaoh, like Nebuchadnezzar, like Jezebel. And he humbles them, showing that their power is nothing. Worldly power, worldly accomplishments, worldly pride, the great things that you've done and achieved without God are nothing. In fact, to the extent that they make us think we might not need God, to the extent that they make us rely on God less... They're worse than nothing. They're incredibly dangerous. God always keeps his covenant. He always shows mercy, but he shows that mercy to the humble, to those who admit their inability and acknowledge their need for God's mercy. As Mary sees this, as she sees that she deserves nothing from God, but like so many throughout history, like so many in this room, she receives great mercy and grace, sometimes inconvenient from her point of view. She overflows with faith and joyful praise. She could have so easily focused on her plans falling apart. We don't even know at this point if she knows how Joseph will respond. I mean, she probably doesn't. It seems like she got told that Elizabeth was six months pregnant and left right away. So she doesn't even know how her fiancé most likely is going to respond. 
but she rejoices in God, her Savior. She humbles herself and magnifies God. What about you? Will you respond to God's sometimes inconvenient seeming grace with faith, rejoicing and magnifying God? Now, you might say, Gareth, I'm not chosen to be the mother of Jesus Christ. I'm not chosen to do anything important. How does Mary's situation apply to me? And I think we can say with great confidence that no one here this morning will give birth to the Messiah. But you are like Mary in that God has a calling on your life. He died for you and he calls you to put your faith and your trust in him and follow him. And furthermore, like Mary, you will only accomplish God's tasks by setting aside some of your own plans. In fact, by willing to lay aside all of your own plans. And as we think how many of our plans have been thrown out again over and over, over the last two years, even now this month, still adjusting expectations, we can understand Mary's situation a little bit more, can't we? Life doesn't always go as planned. Sometimes it can't go as planned if we are to follow God's plans. Maybe you have a situation in your life like that. Think about Mary at this point. What does she think God will do with her son? Well, she knows he'll become king. That's what the angel said. She doesn't yet know that the pathway to kingship goes through the cross and that she too would suffer watching her son suffer. Mary finds favor with God, but finding favor with God doesn't lead to an easy life for Mary, and it won't for you. But her worship of God when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, will sustain her when she understands God's plan and when she doesn't. Because magnifying God raises your faith. True worship is praise and faith, even when it's difficult to see, even when we don't know the outcome in the here and now, when we are suffering, because we're trusting in that better future that God has for us. Because worship is focusing on who God is and what He has done and what He is doing, not first and foremost on our circumstances, good or bad. True faith and true worship sees that ultimately God has sent his son to us so we can know true life everlasting. And we learn from Mary's example to live a life of humility, a life of acknowledging who God is, rejoicing and having faith in God our Savior, even when our plans are changed and when we are led through suffering. So what we're going to do now is we're going to respond uh, the band is going to come up. We had a short, shorter time of worship up front so we could have a few more songs at the back end. And, and really, I'd love just to take this analogy of a telescope and in, invite you into the analogy. And what I mean by that is each of us sees God differently because God is so immense, we can't comprehend all of who he is. And so some of us are better at seeing maybe God's mercy or God's love or God's grace or God's justice better than others. And so what I would love to invite us to do this morning is to respond by maybe coming with a scripture or a prayer or a scripture that you then roof on in prayer that magnifies who God is so we can kind of look through each other's telescopes, as it were. 
so that I'm not just learning to come to Scripture and to read prayers of praise of who God is and to pray them myself, but I'm also benefiting from a community that is doing that together, and I'm not just kind of looking through my own telescope and seeing more clearly who God is, but I'm getting to look through your telescope and your telescope and your telescope, and our faith has been raised, and we're encouraging one another, as Paul urges us to do in 1 Corinthians. Everyone has a hymn, a psalm, a song, a word of praise, and we bring it together to encourage one another. And so there's, there's a small crowd this morning. There's not a lot of people this morning. Maybe you're one of those people that it feels, oh, I'm too shy. I could never come to the front with all these people looking at me. Well, this morning, there's not all these people. This morning, it's just these people who are fantastic people, but it's just these people. And so I would love if we could just respond in faith and turn a telescope of praise to God and that you would give us the opportunity to look through your telescope a little bit and see something more of who God really is as you bring a word of encouragement, uh, a psalm, a hymn, a spiritual song, a prayer of praise to God. Let's all stand together.